You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Morning, church. What a gift to be together on this Christmas Eve Eve. Uh, we're glad you guys are here. I know, I know we have people in town traveling. Uh, both ways, people who are going to see the people and people who are here this weekend. If you're visiting with us this weekend, thanks so much for, for being with us today. It's, it's a joy to be with you. I'm excited for where, where we're going to go this morning. Um, we're taking a break from the book of Mark for several weeks, actually. But today, specifically, we thought, um, kind of being like the last day before Christmas Eve, we have our Christmas Eve gathering tomorrow evening, we thought, let's take a week and reflect specifically just on the Advent, we've been going through the Advent candles this month, and if you are uh, like me and maybe you grew up in a less liturgical church uh, and you don't kind of know the whole Advent wreath deal, that may be weird to you, but I, I would invite you to, to experience this with us today. The Advent wreath, I think, is a really, really cool tradition the church has grabbed a hold of. Uh, it, it's actually a Lutheran tradition. I didn't, I didn't realize that until this last week. The Lutherans are the ones who made up the Advent wreath. So I'm surprised it is as alcohol-free as it is. But uh, the Advent wreath um, surfaced uh, about 100 years after the Reformation and has been picked up by pretty much all Christian denominations, including our, our Catholic and our, and our Orthodox friends. Um, and, and essentially, it's just it's a tactile way for the entire church to walk towards Christmas Eve together. It's, it's this visual, visceral, like it's this, you can touch it, th- th- this experience that just draws us together in the season of Advent as we prepare our hearts and reflect on our souls on the meaning of the coming of Christ. And so the first week of Advent, we light a, uh, a candle of hope. And the idea there is to, to ponder on the fact that, that as Israel was eagerly awaiting their Messiah, there was a hope that God would actually do what he had promised. In the second week, you light the candle of faith. And it's this idea that when you look through the Old Testament over and over and over, you see God's promises of the coming Messiah. And it takes faith to trust that God will actually complete his promises. In the third week, you light the candle of joy, which is this, this reality that when you live in faith and you live in trust of God, it creates joy within your heart that, that actually allows you to live a life of overflowing joy to others. And then this last Sunday before Christmas, so tomorrow night we'll, we'll light the Christ candle and, and we'll talk about the coming of Jesus. But this last Sunday before Christmas, we, we light the peace candle or sometimes called the love candle candle. And the reason is simply this. When, when you are in a place where you have, you have heard the promises of God and you have believed that God is who he says he is and that his word is true and that his promises are as good as a yes and an amen. When you, when you are living in that place, well, it creates peace. It creates peace in your heart that is Better than the peace of this world, as Jesus said. A peace, as Paul said, which surpasses understanding. And this is where we're going to go today. Ultimately, that peace, that kind of distinctly Christian peace, is in a direct expression of the amazing love of our God. And so we spent a few minutes earlier reflecting on the peace 
that, that Advent can create in our lives. But I want us to take a few minutes today and I want us to actually meditate on the amazing, overwhelming love of our God that would create that kind of peace. Does that sound good? Cool. So uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, we're going to read uh, the most famous passage in the Bible this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we, we, just, uh, we just really think it's important to have access to God's Word. There are house Bibles that end each row. You can give someone sitting on the end a little dirty look and they'll pass you one. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, please talk to one of our pastors. We'll make sure you have access to one. We'll, we'll give you one. Um, but, but, but I want to say this, guys. We're, we're about to read literally what is the most well-known passage in Scripture. And we're in this season of Christmas where if you've spent any time in church, you're like, I've heard every possible version of a Christmas message. Like, I know where this is going. If, if that's where your heart is at this morning, I would encourage you, I would encourage you, and we're going to pray in just a moment before we read, to do everything you can to slow down and be present this morning. Not because I'm some awesome speaker who's thought of some new way to talk about the love of Jesus that you've never heard before. Because that's not true. We all know that's not true. But just because the Holy Spirit is real and the Word of God is living and active. And I believe firmly that He has something He wants to speak to us this morning that'll, that'll be good for our souls. So as the LED candles digitally flicker, May we be a people who actually slow down and breathe and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Jesus, you are good. We are a people who are inherently broken inside, God. Our sin and our inward bent dominates our lives. God, we are bent towards selfishness and cynicism and criticism and sarcasm, and we are people who walk into sentimental, joyful seasons and, and see the advertising budgets behind them. God, we ask this morning that as we read your word, that you would illuminate it fresh to our hearts, that you would humble us, that you would remind us how good you are, how different you are, than this world that we experience. And God, may we leave here this morning more in love with you than when we walked in the door. Amen. So we're in John chapter 3, starting in the first verse. The gospel according to John tells us this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, 
and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it might be seen clearly that his works have been carried out in God. And this is the word of the Lord. So, we've all heard at least a bit of that before, right? That's like if you've ever been to a sporting event, someone somewhere has put at least part of this passage on a poster board and held it up in the background for the camera to see. John 3, specifically John 3, 16 and 17, most famous passage in, in all of Scripture. It's the one the majority of people have seen or heard. Uh, my, my Awana people in the room, you're like, I memorized that one first. Got my little badge to go on my Sparky's vest. Uh, and, and, and we get it, and it's, it's cool. What I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through this the way we do any normal passage. I want to I pull out just a couple of the historical contextual pieces so that maybe we can put ourselves in this story a little bit. And I think it's going to take us a, a really cool place this morning that I think is going to help us just reflect on the coming of Christ in, in, in a new and fresh way. So our story in John 3 puts us, puts us with Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, if you've been with us in Mark over the last, I don't know, like year and a half, this is not, in Mark's telling, Jesus visits Jerusalem in the last week of his life, the Passion Week. That's where we're at in Mark right now. This is not that same time in John's telling of the story. This is earlier in Jesus' ministry. He's visiting Jerusalem for a Passover celebration, and he's staying with friends outside the city. And at night, this man Nicodemus comes to speak with him in private. And, and by the way, if you've been with us in Mark, you can probably guess that this is a different time that Jesus is in Jerusalem because Nicodemus isn't yelling at him and trying to kill him. He's coming to him to speak with him and have a conversation. Now, it's really easy to think, oh, Nicodemus, he came at night, he's sneaking in, he's ashamed of this, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually pretty unlikely. You see, at this point, Jesus is already a well-known rabbi. 
And what we hear from Nicodemus is that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the rulers of Israel. So we're talking about two well-known public figures, two deeply trained theologians who are in Jerusalem at the busiest time of the year, one of the most sacred festivals when the most people would be in the temple. And for them to meet up during the day, during the time of teaching, during the time of worship, and try and have an intimate conversation would be impossible. So instead, Nicodemus comes out to Jesus at night, actually a sign of respect, saying, I'll come to you where you're staying, and let's have a conversation. And so he comes and he meets with Jesus, and he essentially says, listen, listen, I've heard you teach, I've seen your miracles, obviously God is doing something with you. Explain this teaching to me, because I don't fully understand it, and I want, I want, I want to see what you're communicating. Remember, Jesus' message can be easily summed up. We see in Mark chapter 1, verse 6, where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, right? This, is, this message Jesus is preaching throughout his ministry is that God is doing this new thing, that God's kingdom is here, it's present, it's being established. It's a very messianic message, right? That the people of God at this time are really hopeful and awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus, his message peaks into that interest perfectly. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent. You need to believe. And so this, this Pharisee, this religious leader, this theologian comes to Jesus and says, explain this teaching to me. What do you mean the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What do you, what do you mean by this? And Jesus' response is, well, you must be born again to understand the kingdom. It's a weird response. <laughs> I love Nicodemus' response because he basically says, that's not how it works, Jesus. And, uh, <laughs> and we could look at that and think, well, Jew is Nicodemus. How dumb are you? He's making an analogy. Nicodemus is actually really intelligent. He's, you're talking about a dude who's on the Sanhedrin. You're talking about a dude who is the equivalent today of like, a one or two PhD theologian, right? Who has probably the entire Pentateuch memorized word for word. So when Jesus uses this, this figurative language that was normative in the culture of the educated rabbis, Nicodemus is not an idiot. He responds to him using his language. So he says, what is that? Uh, yeah, okay, you need to be born again. What does that mean? That's, that's not how it works. You, you could look at you could look at what Jesus is saying here as him essentially saying, you miss this teaching because you're too steeped in your theological system. Remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a Sanhedrin. He is a teacher of the law. He is bought into the Pharisaical understanding of the Scripture, which is essentially God's wrath is upon us because we don't obey the, obey the law. Let us learn to obey the law perfectly. Let us create extra laws that keep us from disobeying the law. Then, because of our righteousness, God will remove his wrath from us and send the Messiah and free us from Rome. This is the thrust of the Pharisaical theology that Nicodemus is totally bought into. And Jesus says, you are too stuck in your theological rut to understand my teaching. If you want to learn this, you've got to start over. You must be born again. And Nicodemus says, is that even possible? Can someone live their whole life in a single rut and then just hear a good teacher and then switch gears? 
that even a thing? Do you really expect me to just take you at your word and start from scratch? And Jesus says to him, yeah. <laughs> and he gives this teaching, right, about born of flesh is flesh and born of spirit is spirit and, and you the wind, how the wind works. And what you see Jesus saying here is, listen, man, God does stuff. He does it, and you can't control it. You don't initiate it. He does it. God is God, and you can see it, and you can catch wind of it, and you can understand theology, but yeah, yeah, I do expect you to actually change. I do expect you to be so open to what God is doing and God is saying that you're willing to drop your entire life and all your education and start from scratch. I do expect that because God does that in people. Yeah. Right? And Nicodemus says, how can this be? How can that be? How could it be that, that I've spent my life studying this? I have, I have given my whole person to knowing and loving this God. How could that possibly be for nothing? That I would need to start over. That I would need to throw all those things out. That you're telling me that, that my whole life up to this point is just me catching the wind, but, but never actually controlling it, never actually understanding it, never actually seeing where it came from, where it, that I just felt it, in the, that, that, that my entire life is just chasing wind? And Jesus is like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then Jesus comes to him, what, with a rebuke, right? How are, you're a teacher of Israel. You're, you're a shepherd of the people. And this shocks you? That, that God could do something beyond your understanding? That God could do something of his own will and his own authority? That's, that's strange to you? You don't understand that? You're, you're one of the teachers of Israel. And then he points back to this passage. He, by the way, I love verse 13. It's a verse that we, that we miss really easily in our context. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. The Son of Man is a verse that just kind of feels weird to us. But this was one of the common ways that these crazy and heretical messianic figures in Jesus' day would claim authority. They would say, oh, the Spirit of God swept me up into heaven, and I saw how it works, and now I've come back, and I'm going to tell you guys what's up. And Jesus says, no one ascends into heaven. That stuff's garbage. The only one who's actually seen God and seen the kingdom and seen his will is his son who he sent down here. <laughs> Dang. I think I said something last week about elementary school kids and seeing heaven in surgery. I don't know. You'd have to go back and listen to that sermon. Uh, I'm not going to touch that. But anyway, Jesus says no one knows this except the Son of Man whom God sent down from heaven. And then he gives this reference to Moses in Numbers 21. 
And if you guys know that story, right, we're, we're actually going to look at it in just a second. But he gives this reference to the story with Moses and the Israelites in the desert and snakes. And there's a whole thing. And then he moves on to John 3.16. But we're going to hit pause real quick. I, I don't want to look at John 3.16. First, let's actually turn back and look at this passage Jesus is referencing in Numbers. I actually think this is important. You see, Jesus is crushing the very heart of the pharisaical teaching here, right? The the heart of the pharisaical theology is that we can be righteous enough to appease God's wrath. People just aren't disciplined enough. If we could make Israel more disciplined and more godly, then God would love us more and his wrath would go away and we would be free. This is the heart of the teaching of the shepherds of Israel. And Jesus says, you are missing who God is. You have memorized the scriptures you have taught and you have studied and you have landed on something terribly wrong. And he references this story in Numbers 21. The Nicodemus would have known would have probably had memorized. Let me read this to us. This is Numbers 21. You can turn there, starting in verse 4. It says this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, he that sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's a weird little story, right? If, if, you, if you don't know the Israelite history, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for generations, and God used the man Moses to lead them and unify them and free them from that oppression. And then this is a period of time when they've left Egypt, but they have not settled into the land that God has promised them, what is modern day like Palestine and Israel and those things. And, and they're wandering through the desert. And as they're wandering, they begin to grumbling, grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses. I know you guys have no way of relating to that because you've never grumbled against God's plan in your life. It's, it's weird. I know like you read these stories and you just think, I could never relate to that. I just... I'm so loving and trustful all the time. But these guys, they're really sinful. So they start grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses. And God's response to that is to send poisonous snakes to kill them. Think about that next time you're in your GC and you want to say something. All right? I'm just kidding. (laughs) So God sends poisonous snakes. I'm just kidding. You can grumble all you want in your GC. Um, God sends poisonous snakes and the people start dying right and left and they, and they come to Moses in, in shock and in repentance 
And they say, hey, we have sinned. This is on us. We, we know that we're in sin. We've been mistrusting God. Please, please, please pray to God for us that he would have mercy on us. This is crazy. And so God goes and he, Moses goes and he prays to God and God says, all right, here's the deal. Make a statue on snakes. Put it up on a statue. And anytime someone gets bit, all they got to do is look at the statue and they'll be good. And so Moses is like, cool. So he goes and he makes a bronze snake and he puts it on a stick and he puts it in the middle of the camp. And he just tells everyone, hey, God heard your prayer. It's all good. If you get bit, just look at the snake and, uh, you know, you'll be good. And they go about their day. Now, that solution is amazing on so many levels <laughs> because God who sent the snakes wasn't like, I'm not taking it. <laughs> yeah, sure, I forgive you. I'll take the snakes away. Instead, he was like, no, they're def- they live there now. This is their home. Uh, your camp is their promised land. I freed them from snake Egypt. So they live here now. But if one of them bites you, just look at this cool snake statue and you'll be good. Uh, and I just want you to think about that. If you're in Israel and you're hanging out in your tent and a cobra or asp or whatever it is comes and bites you, and you feel, the, and you feel like going to your leg, and you're freaking out, and your husband's like, just run outside and look at the statue! <laughs> and you go out and look at the statue, and you think, what is this doing? Right? You're just looking at a statue, but you're good. And that's the way God solves the problem. I love this story on so many levels because it's such a weird ridiculous story. And honestly, I know some of you are thinking, how is this a sermon on God's love? This is a story about God sending poisonous snakes to kill people. Uh, but, but, but I want you to actually think about this with me for a moment. This story almost perfectly mirrors the telling of the gospel. So, so hear this for a moment. Think about this. God's people, God's creation choose to sin. God, in his righteous judgment, in his perfection, punishes that sin. God's people come to him asking for mercy because of death, the consequence of their sin. God provides a salvation for them that is, catch this, apart from any actual work they do. Right? God sets up a salvation for them, and the only thing they can do to engage in that salvation is believe that it's actually a salvation. Right? He doesn't remove the snakes. He doesn't give them 15 steps to a snake-free life. He says, go outside and look at the statue and just trust me. And some of us, right, in our Western scientific mind are like, so what actually happened? Like, did they look at the statue and like the venom just like turned to blood inside their blood? Or maybe like the venom like it was like a weird like revert like maybe God sent like this weird reverse pressure and like the venom shot out the bite or like I have no idea what happened. But if you look at the statue and you believe that God is who He says He is, you're going to be good. This is the telling of the gospel story. God has given blessing by creating everything, and yet his creation rebels and chooses sin. And God demonstrates that the natural consequence of sin, because he is perfect and righteous, is death. And people are left 
hopeless and trapped in their death apart from God. And yet God in his mercy provides a way out through the person of Jesus. That when you look upon the cross, think about this. When you look upon Christ and you hear the gospel story and you say in your heart, yeah, that's true. I trust that. Then you receive life. This, this is the gospel story, right in the Pentateuch, right in the middle of Numbers. That's the one we're all excited to get to in our Read the Bible in a Year plan. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, don't you remember the snake? You really think God needs you to do something in order for him to save you really think God's kingdom needs God's people to perfectly obey the law before it can come and invade this world? You really think that? Don't you remember the snake? God can do what he wants. God can free and save apart from your righteousness. Just like that snake got raised up in the desert, the Son of Man will be raised up. And then he says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In the same way that an Israelite bit by a snake can look up at a statue and believe that God is who he says he is and then receive temporal life. Sinful, broken humanity can look to the Son of Man who has been lifted up and believe in him and not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Beloved, this is the gospel. God loves you. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He loves you with a depth and a ferocity and an intensity that is beyond your ability to fully comprehend. Beloved, this is the love of your God who comes to you and says, you can't do this. You can't fix it. You can't be good enough. But I don't care. I love you more than that. I will do what is necessary to have you. <clears throat> Beloved, do you, do you hear that? The, the love of God is so intense that he looks upon your sin, he looks upon your helplessness and says, I will do whatever is necessary to have you. And you won't do a thing. The only action 
that God asks of his children is that when he says, I'll save you, I promise, the work is done, you say, I believe you, Dad. That's it. That's, that's the love of our Jesus. All he asks of you. Do you actually believe him? Do you actually love him? That's, that's intense. That's what breaks Nicodemus' categories. He can't understand it. You see, this is the thrust of Jesus' message to Nicodemus and the thrust of his message to us. God is doing a new thing. He's inaugurating a new kingdom. It's not how it used to be. It's not how you think it is. God loves you so much that he's made a way for you. Think about some of these teachings from the scripture. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God has been made known among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, he loves you. You are the beloved of God. You are loved so dearly by God. He loves you so passionately, so intently, so faithfully, so unfailingly. Everything we talk about at Christmas comes back to this truth. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. I know that some of you, even as I'm saying this, are in your mind building the construct of, yeah, I know God has to love me because he's perfect, but I'm actually pretty terrible. Whiny, insignificant me, caught in my sins, me, angry, bitter me. I know that some of you guys are doing that, but I, I need you to hear this. Yeah, that's true. You're pretty terrible. So am I. That has nothing to do with this. God doesn't love you because of your inherent awesomeness. He loves you because you're His. He loves you because you're precious to Him. Because He made you. He designed you. He has intentions for you. He cares for you. It does not matter how terrible of a creature you are. Guess what? We're all pretty terrible creatures. We have all gone astray. We have all sought death. We have all chosen sin. We have all blasphemed our Lord from the moment we took our first breath until this very morning today. And He loves you. Beloved, there is, there is never a moment in this entire equation where, where God's thoughts about you are in any way unclear. God's thoughts about you are intense, passionate love and desire. Always. 
from before creation until the end of time, you are precious to him. And nothing affects that. Nothing changes that. Nothing diminishes that. And some of you need to hear this. Nothing increases that. God's love for you is an unmoving, unchangeable fact of existence. It's true. It's true. The only question left open in the the gospel story has nothing to do with whether or not God actually loves you. It has to do with whether or not you love God. Read on in the text what Jesus says to Nicodemus. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Beloved, we're all wretched sinners. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And some of us really, really love that stuff. All of us. In our heart of hearts, really, really love what we get out of sin. What we get about out of taking control and exacting vengeance and being angry and being bitter and being divisive and gossiping and hurting and lying and stealing and lusting. Every single one of us, on some level, our heart gets giddy for the thought of those things. And I know that's not... <laughs> It's like the worst possible Christmas message. We all love doing terrible things. But we do. We love the darkness. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. But the world, people, loved the darkness rather than the light. Beloved, God loves you. That piece of this equation hasn't changed and will not change. The question you need to ask yourself is, do you love God? Do you believe Him when He says how much He loves you and how precious you are and how far He's willing to go for you? Do you hear Him say, I so love the world that I sent my son. And something in your heart goes, man, that's actually way bigger than the stuff I chase after. Does that, does that, does that actually strike you? And, and I don't care if you've been a Christian since you were seven. I want you to reflect on this. Nicodemus was a brilliant theologian who loved God passionately. Don't miss that. Don't, don't think of the Pharisees as these evil monsters who were trying to pull one over on Israel. They loved God. They just didn't know Him. They didn't know Him. I don't care how long you've been in church. Do you love Jesus? Do you reflect on his amazing love for you? And is your heart stirred with affection 
This is the question we must ask. And beloved, I would, I would argue that this is why Advent is such a beautiful season. Because if we're honest, all of us love sin. Or we wouldn't chase after it. And, and on some level, no matter how much you love Christ, you are a conflicted person. On some level, you are a mess of contradictions that loves the light and loves the darkness all at the same time. All of us do this. And Advent gives us this beautiful, structured, collective, familial reminder that if you forget how much Christ loves you, if you question the depth and veracity of the love of God, you get this image to come back to. A middle school girl giving birth to a baby in a barn with her high school age husband and no one else around. That's, that's the image that we get to come back to. Some of you have middle school daughters, and you're like, I don't like this image. A middle school girl giving birth to a baby with no one to help but her high school-age husband, sitting around with animals, This is a picture of the love of God. The God of the universe, deserving of all worship and all dignity, all, all power and all authority, born in a barn, helpless and being taken care of by a middle school girl. Whew. Beloved, this morning we're going to end here. You are beloved of God. You just are. He sees you better than you see yourself. See, we like to see the scummy stuff that we, we feel like it goes down to the core and defines our person, but beloved, God made you. He formed your inward parts. He stamped his image upon you. You are precious. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.